0: Welcome to The Bounce, Sports Talk with a Spin. This is the podcast where sports becomes eclectic. We talk about everything from fascinating athletes you've never heard of to taking a deep dive into sports issues that don't always make the news. So whether you're an athlete, a fan, or just want to know more about sports, The Bounce has got you covered. Growing up in Florida, Brad Snyder spent most of his childhood in a pool or at the beach. Later, at the U.S. Naval Academy, he was the captain of the swim team. In 2011, while serving in Afghanistan, Snyder lost his vision after a 40-pound improvised explosive device exploded in his face. Remarkably, a year later, Snyder was back in the pool, this time at the Paralympics in London, where he won two gold medals and one silver medal in swimming. In 2020, at the Tokyo Paralympics, Snyder again scored gold, this time in the triathlon. Outside of his athletic career, Snyder is a PhD candidate at Princeton and the author of the memoir, Fire in My Eyes. Brad Snyder, it is an absolute honor to have you on The
1: Bounce. Thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak with you today.
0: Brad, we met a couple of years back at the Ivy Bookshop, uh, right here in Baltimore, when you mm-hmm. were on tour with your your book, Fire in My Eyes. And I actually reread the book in anticipation of today's interview. And it was even like n- now that I know where you are today, the book was like ten times more more meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. So, just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with, I'm going to call it your origin story. Can you just <laughs> briefly set the stage, your elevator speech of um, how you ca- how you came to be where where you are today, from joining the service to, well, I won't
1: I won't give it away, but spoiler alert, yeah, so, yeah, that's uh, it's been a long journey, yeah. I, you know, I was in high school when the towers came down and uh, I'm part of that generation and I'm part of the generation that saw that as our call to service, um, to, to try to, you know, join the, join the ranks of those who would try to make sure that that sort of thing never happened again, you know, a, an enemy intrusion into the homeland and, in uh, such a catastrophic and really polarizing event. Um, I, you know, I was a, I was a swimmer in high school. And when I went to the Naval Academy originally as a sophomore in high school before the Towers came down, it's a pretty permissive place. Yeah, sure, there was a wall around it, but it was just kind of like a regular college, more or less. Um, But when I came to campus after the Towers came down, there was a barricaded Marine with a machine gun at the front gate. And it was really sort of emblematic of how the world had changed and um, kind of what my life trajectory would look like. So I I spent four years at the Naval Academy. I swam along the way. I loved being a college athlete, but really my college experience was really hell bent on, uh, you know, going on deployment, going downrange, and uh, engaging in the fight against terrorism in some way, shape, or form. Um, when I graduated, that that form took uh took the form of a uh, bomb disposal technician. I was uh, I joined the bomb squad. Spent about a year training to do that mission. Ended up going to Iraq to do that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine came back and then did some more training and then went to Afghanistan to do a, a similar mission and that's where I got hurt um, I, I stepped on a 40pound IED that detonated about uh, a foot and a half in front of me uh, in in many ways I was very lucky to have been able to walk away from that incident but the lasting uh, consequences were I lost my vision um, in in 2011 you know while I was in the hospital we had actually you know we as a country have gotten really good at rehabbing wounded vets. And uh, it was pretty quick that they presented me the opportunity to go back to sports as a way of you know finding my way into my new reality as a blind guy. And it was really cathartic for me in a lot of different ways. but in 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 some ways, uh, actually, someone pretty early on in my blind journey said that I or pointed out that I was very lucky to be have injured to have been injured in a Paralympic year. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but uh, in short order was able to get into Paralympic competition and actually join Team USA in London, and uh, and actually won a gold medal on the exact year anniversary of the day I lost my vision in Afghanistan, September seventh. So that's really the the story arc of, of fire in my eyes, um, and. Uh, has really kind of uh, codifies the new direction of my life. You know, I was on one direction of service, and then on September seventh, two thousand eleven, that changed dramatically. Um, but thankfully, because of adaptive sport in the Paralympics, I was able to put myself on a really awesome path that has taken me to where I am now.
0: Yeah, I mean that that story in itself. Even if we stopped the interview here, that would that would be enough, as my people would say, Dianu, that would be enough but wait, but wait, there's more. Um, (laughs) and because this is the bounce I want to talk about, um, I really want to talk about sport with, with you. Mm. Um, so again, in rereading the book, I really paid uh, attention. Actually, most of the book is, is, is your story before, before the accident. And then there's, you know, the Paralympics and then kind of the book, the book ends. But, uh, I wanted to ask about kind of swimming, swimming blind because it, I don't know, just reading the book, was it the transition seemed kind of rather um rather easy? Like it 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 felt to me that like as soon as you got in the water, you're like, oh my God, I'm home again. I know this. This 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 I know is gonna heal me. Did it seem like that to you? Uh like I don't
1: know, if in the first couple of times in the in the pool? Very much so. Very much so. Um you know, I, 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 uh, I'd I spent my whole life in the water. You know, I, we grew up in Florida. I was, a, you know, at, just an avid body surfer before I ever started competitively swimming. I fell in love with the pool and competitive swimming at the age of 11 for many, many years. Just spent hours upon hours at the pool training with the idea of wanting to be an Olympic athlete. I mean, we were obsessed with the Olympics at the time. I trained with a guy who was trying to go to the Olympic team. And we just, as a family, really, we are obsessed about swimming. I have three siblings. And at one point when I was in high school, all of us were swimming in the same age group team, going to the same meets on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you ask my parents, it was year round every weekend. It mm. seemed like going to meets. So swimming was just a huge part of my identity. It was a very natural place to kind of go back to. In a, in a moment of crisis, more or less. And it really was kind of a place where I felt home. I felt familiar. I feel very comfortable in the water. And I think a lot of people look at it as saying, oh my gosh, how do you swim without your eyeballs? But like, it's such a feel-oriented sport. I had spent so much time really uh, reaffirming my stroke and reaffirming my flip turn and reaffirming all these things, rep after rep over years and years and years going back into the water, just felt like, oh, I know how to do this. Yeah, I I need some help steering. And like, Mm -hmm. there was an adjustment of how to figure out how to do it without being able to kind of to navigate all that well. But that came relatively quickly. And the the, the 80% of it was just feeling comfortable in the water and feeling like myself and feeling like I could move fast. Blindness in general is really characterized by I feel somewhat locked in sometimes. Like I can't get from point A to point B very fast. I have to move slow so I don't bump my head and have to use my hands to feel my way around. And even with a guide dog, I'm kind of constrained, at least relative to the way that I used to be. But in the water, I was so free. I could move wherever I wanted to and I could go wherever I wanted to. I could go really fast. I could push myself. I could get my heart rate over 200. Uh, And it was just like my, it was just a sense of freedom. And so in a in a world uh, defined by constraints, especially early in blindness, to be able to feel free was just an amazing feeling, and then to be able to go fast and compete was just mm-hmm. another gift.
0: When um, so, when you were first getting into the pool, um, can you talk a little more specifically about what adaptations mm-hmm. you do have to make, um, mm-hmm. especially in competition? Like, um, how do you know? how do you state when you're going really, really hard, like all out, like say you, you were doing like a 50 free or something, how do you mm-hmm. not knock into the lanes or judge where c- your competitors are? I know that, you know, when you're swinging, you can kind of take a peek. Um, how do you navigate that?
1: So I'd say there's kind of like three layers. One, from an aspirational standpoint, I dive off the block every time and don't want to touch the lane line. So if I, in theory, completely symmetrical with my stroke and I dive off really strong and even, it's almost like skiing to an point. Like you kind of, if you just push yourself into the right spot on the slope, Mm -hmm. you can stay in the right spot. And so I kind of think of it that way when I dive off the block. So I'm hoping for the best and I'm trying to hit that sweet spot in the middle of the lane. Um, So then that's layer one. Layer two is, well, inevitably I'm going to fatigue and fatigue is probably going to hit me unevenly. So what I do is I actually, we do a drill in age group swimming called fingertip drag drill, where we just on your arm recovery, each, this is with the crawl stroke freestyle with the freestyle stroke, I drag my fingertips just on the very surface of the water on my arm recovery. And I'm actually, if you imagine kind of drawing an arc from your hip around your shoulder above my head, I'm sort of swinging an arc outward. And the idea there is if I am actually over on the right or the left-hand side of the lane, I'll catch it with my fingers as opposed to plow into it with my shoulders. So if I catch the lane line with my fingers, I'll adjust. I'll make a micro adjustment and try to push myself back into that sweet spot in the center of the lane. Um, so that's layer number two. Layer number three is, okay, I've just trucked down 50 meters. What do I do when I get to the wall? Um, a teammate or a coach, uh, by the way, my long-standing coach, the best blind coach in the world is actually at Loyola in Roland Park up in Northern Baltimore. Uh, Brian Leffler, who's been there a long time and has really kind of made a name for himself, uh, creating a home for Paris swimmers up in North Baltimore. So quick shout out to Brian Leffler. Um, but yeah, he would kind of constantly be my A-game tapper. So he'll stand on the side of the pool with one of my blind canes, which is basically just a long pole with a tennis ball in the end. And as I approach the wall, he reaches out over the water and taps me in the back on my shoulder blades with that tennis ball to let me know that I'm about a meter away from the wall. Mm. And We practice that movement over and over and over again, just like track athletes with a baton so that it feels very organic rehearsed. And the second I get that tap, I lean over and conduct my flip turn. And our, our aspirational goal is that if you were to just imagine the tap or not there, it would, it should look like I knew the wall was there all along. Um, and I'd say 90% of the turns, you know, end up right where you want to be and you bounce back and go that back the other way. Um, so I, I, I think that's kind of the, the three layers of, of trying to get as fast as I can in that sweet spot, making that adjustment from being able to see where I'm going uh, to not being able to see. And it's, it's a development process. Like in, the, in the lead up to London, I was crashing all over the place. Every, lane, every 50 meters, I was crashing probably two or three times, coming out of the pool, bleeding in my elbows. By the time I got to the Rio games, though, I think I had really worked on that sort of art of staying in the sweet spot.
0: How, how does it work with backstroke then? Is the uh, tap, tap on the clavicle? How do you? Mm.
1: It's a great question. It's, it's subjective. And it's kind of neat going at the international level. It's wild seeing how uh, different, cult- different countries and different cultures attack the same problems. And there's a couple different ways you can do it. And even in freestyle, some countries really like this long tap. So they have almost like a bent fishing pole. And they'll tap their blind swimmer way out, like all the way out to the mm. flag. So that swimmer's then doing two or three strokes into the wall. For me at full speed, I feel like my stroke count might vary and I wanna like, I wanna pinpoint. So I only do a meter out. Um, in backstroke though, it's kind of a, it's a 50-50 mix. Some people do the, the tap over the front in the, also on the clavicle. My tapper, Brian, he'll actually go underneath the water. So he'll, he'll kneel down on the side of the pool and he'll have the tapper underwater. And as I get close, he'll pull the tapper up into my shoulder blades again. We like that because a bunch of times in competition, As I'm coming back with my arm, I've caught the tapper and I'll push the the rod into the water and then that gets in my way. And then I'm doing this, you know, it's like a diver. I'm doing a a roll and a flip at the same time. And if there's a tapper in the water while I'm rolling Mm. and flipping, that's just a disaster. So if he's underneath (laughs) me, uh, that's very less, a lot less likely that I'm going to catch the tapper and uh, I'll be able to do my roll and flip. No problem.
0: Um you were saying that um, different countries you know, um, have sort of different, different techniques. Can you speak a little more about that? Or actually the question I want to ask you is like in an early heat with maybe less experienced swimmers, have, have any of them ever like come into your lane or encroach into your lane and how did how have you handled that?
1: So um, I've actually gone into the wrong lane a bunch. I mean, I, I when I got into the sport, um, I think most, most other blind people, especially when I was like 2012, most other blind po- people had been blind a while and knew how to do it and had, you know, their, their ability to navigate and feel the lane lines. And they were more savvy than I was. And I was pretty aggressive. My goal was just get out there at full speed and hope for the best. So I ended up in the wrong lane a bunch of times. Um, the worst of it was actually, uh, at London in the hundred backstroke, actually mm. the, um, the a swimmer from Spain was up against the lane line on his left side. I was up against the lane line on my right side. So we were swimming side by side within arms arms distance. Um, on his on his arm pull, he came through and hit me in the back of the head at about the three quarters across the, the pool mark. So you know, uh, thirty five meters or so, and I misunderstood the smack in the back of my head for the tap from my coach. Oh no. So I, Yep. I rolled over and flipped thinking it was the tap at the 35 meter mark. Obviously I I flipped over and I didn't feel anything with my feet. So I underwater was just backpedaling with my hands for a while. And it's like, (laughs) Oh my God, this is a disaster. So I actually kind of popped up and I kind of put my arms in the air like this, kind of in the direction of my coach, Brian yelled at me, like, come to the wall. And I was like, Oh, this is a disaster. So I actually swam freestyle into the wall, bucket turned and went back the other way. Um, But Brian was pretty savvy. This is at the Paralympics, so this was uh, in a preliminary heat for hundred backstroke. He ran over to the official and it said, "Did you see that?" And the official's response was, "See what?" And Brian lost it. Like, what do you mean, "See what"? Like this was a disaster. So uh, he explained, you know, that he got a hit in the head. He he rolled over. This and that, the other thing. Because it was the Paralympics, they actually had video of it. So we, I think we did some kind of like we officially protested the swim. Mm. And the, when the r- officials reviewed it, they said, "Yeah, okay. So what we're going to do is um, every swimmer can redo this heat." And actually, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a preliminary heat. It was the finals heat, and that was at the beginning of that night. They said that any swimmer can have the option to come back and re-swim the hundred backstroke. Well, I was the only swimmer who elected to do it. So at the conclusion of finals, they announced there's going to be one additional heat for the evening. Going to be the S11, which is blind athletes, S11 100 meter backstroke. And they announced my name in front of that whole 20,000 people. <laughs> I walked out by myself to swim 100 backstroke. And um, because I had the whole pool to myself, um, I normally like I, I shortchange my underwaters because. Uh, I don't want to go underneath the lane line. Well, Brian whispered to me, he's like, you have the whole pool, be aggressive on your underwaters and go as fast as you can. So uh, we we went out we enjoyed it. I waved to the crowd. I swam 100 back. <laughs> I, I did like a pretty good time, a good time for me, but still only got fifth. But it was kind of a, a story to be shared of how I swam a heap by myself. I may be one of the only Paralympic swimmers that I know of who has swam a heat by themselves at the Paralympics.
0: Oh my God, that was like your your solo, it's yes, my, my, it's my solo. soliloquy <laughs> swim here in front of all my, the yeah. masses. That's a that's that's actually a a great story. I mean, you know, in any competition, all kinds of stuff happens. You know, with, oh, yeah. with nerves and um, technical stuff, whatever. But you know, chapeau that that Brian had your back in every way and uh, advocated for you. That's a a great coach.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it really made me comfortable to know I could just focus on swimming and Brian's going to figure it out and help me out and all that sort of stuff. You know, having a good coach in your corner is priceless.
0: We'll be right back with more of The Bounce Sports Talk with a Spin. Welcome back to The Bounce. We're talking to Paralympic gold medal swimmer and triathlete Brad Snyder. So one thing that I am really excited about is is the Paralympics in general. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the uh, the first mm-hmm. episode of The Bounce, which is I Hate the Olympics, which mm-hmm. really, it's a catchy title. I don't hate the Olympics. But believe no, of course <laughs> we wouldn't be here having this conversation. But... Um, you know as as Scheinberg, Scheinberg, who is the guest said you know there there's a lot to be said for redress in the olympics you know it's it's not this is not your grandparents olympics in in these days the paralympics on the other hand are like rocking everybody loves the paralympics mm. i feel like the olympics are kind of a little bit it, it's it's not their best time but mm-hmm. the paralympics are definitely a- ascending do you as as an athlete also get that sense that there is huge momentum behind the, the
1: Paralympics? Well, I, I certainly hope so. And it's intensely gratifying to hear you say that because it's not as though, you know, we just rolled over one day and all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, there's Paralympics. Like it, it, it's been a, it's a major arc. The Paralympics have been around for some time and have only recently begun to gain traction within broader society. And There's been a number of athletes involved at the now USOPC, which used to be the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee is now one of four countries in the world that oversees both the Olympic and Paralympic movement in the the United States um, or in its respective country. Uh, That that has been at the, you know, a lot of those people involved at the organization have been pushing really hard to say, you know, this is really important and this is something that should be invested in. Um, You know, as you alluded to, and as you guys discussed on that first podcast, the modern day Olympics are sort of the confluence of a lot of really big forces. The Olympics originally were just kind of this avenue of competition and making ourselves better and maybe socializing ourselves in these values that are alternative to conflict and things like that. Um, But, you know, now the modern day Olympics are this, you know, big broadcasting contracts and corporate interest and, and being able to host the Olympics has now become this, you know, big thing and having the games in Beijing is a whole nother discussion about geopolitics and and so on and so forth. Um, But I I say all that to say um, the uh, the corporate interest that fuels the modern day Olympics, there's been kind of sort of this chicken and egg with Paralympics. No one really wanted to invest in Paralympics because nobody knew how society would embrace uh, a sports movement based on athletes with disabilities. And for a long time, it sort of existed in the shadow of the Olympic Games. And I think due to the leadership of some really important organizations, uh, on one side, you have corporate interest. the leadership of Toyota, BP, a handful of other big corporations have said, yeah, we're interested in sponsoring Paralympic competition. You've actually seen commercials, uh, Super Bowl commercials involving para-athletes, major big dollar sponsorship agreements with para-athletes.
0: I've seen you on TV on commercials.
1: That's right. I was <laughs> I was really close to being in a Super Bowl commercial. I was what? in a commercial Stop. that they ran during the Super Bowl, but they cut my two seconds out of it. So I told no. everybody I was going to be on a Super Bowl commercial and then my little two two second snippet <laughs> got cut out of it. But um, that's neither here nor there. The, the, the broad strokes of it, though, are corporate interest says we're interested in para-athletics. The 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 broadcast is a different conversation. NBC, I think, in general, has been reticent to put Paralympics on TV because they don't know how the ratings are going to be. We didn't have ratings. So NBC said, we're not going to put something on TV unless there's ratings. Well, we said, well, it's not going to be ratings unless you put it on TV. (laughs) Uh, And so that chicken and egg has persisted for a while. But over the last two games, there has been increasing amounts of primetime coverage of Paralympics. And guess what? It got great ratings. Exactly. Oh yeah. man! So yeah, you're right. We're we're at this like real big precipice. That said, what I'm really proud about, I'll just end on this note. In the United States, the Olympic and Paralympic movement are overseen by the same work. We are the same. We're an integrated movement, and I think the para the para athletes, para programs, para sport in general benefits greatly from our counterparts on the Olympic side. And I think the reciprocal is true. I think the the Olympic movement now stands to benefit from the integration with the Paralympic movement, especially in the United States, which is the, the biggest IOC and IPC, excuse me, NOC and NPC in the world.
0: Brett, I absolutely agree with you. It's like a rising tide is going lift, to lift all boats. And we probably shouldn't think of it as like, oh, Olympics, hyphen, or or full stop Paralympics. This really is all all one entity. Because at the end of the day, you guys are all athletes. You're all training. your Ass, asses off, you're all competing for for the medals and for you know personal satisfaction. There really isn't, um, you know, it, it should be seen as one unified entity.
1: Yeah, and I think you're going to see, I think in a number of cases, the sports movements at the, at the sport level are integrated. USA Triathlon is a great example. The national teams of the para, the para team and the Olympic team are the same national team, same for, for the most part, same benefits. Uh, Same travel, same races. Uh, USA hockey is integrated. USA volleyball is integrated. Um, And I think you're going to see a number of the the bigger sports be integrated here soon. I think they're at the international level. The the, uh, Paralympics just shifted uh, alpine skiing and snowboarding over to FIS, the International Federation for Able-Bodied Skiing and Snowboard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think you're going to see a lot more of these integrating moves. And the same is occurring at the NCAA. Not as much progression there. The NCAA is really kind of Stumbled on trying to figure out how do we integrate para sport, but I think you're seeing major moves in that regard. I think you're going to see Paralympic heats at major swimming uh, conferences like the Matt Conference on the East Coast and things like that. So look for that integration to start occurring across the sport landscape, not only here in the U.S. but across the world.
0: Oh, that's that's really that's really cool. I will totally I will totally look for that. Now, as you pointed out, Baltimore is a great is a great swimming city. It has a long mm-hmm. long history of of that, so something that that I find um, interesting, a general a general topic is the um, and it's sort of applicable at all levels of of sport, you know, um the there is so much going on in in sport now, so many intense and conversations, so many well-meaning conversations about yeah. how to um how sports need to advance. You know, there are conversations about trans athletes. Yep. Um, I did a documentary called Tainted Blood, which is about mm-hmm. the blood doping scandal at the 1984 Olympics. And I wanted to look at more the circumstances around it, not to point fingers, but what why why would you dope? What did the athletes, were they conscious of it? What were the results? And mm-hmm. uh you know and, and since and obviously there have been so many other doping scandals but i think the the kind of meta conversation is like what constitutes fairness and parity in sports and i think that the paralympics really um are are really forced to navigate that in a very thoughtful way by um mm-hmm. by the specific categories that that you have is there ever among the athletes um conversation like this just the, will those categories ever, ever shift? Are they negotiable or who, who decides how to apportion the categories um, for, uh, for disabilities to make them, quote unquote, fair or more mm-hmm. equitable?
1: This is a, an excellent question. It's at the absolute core of sport in general. Uh, and it is something that is incredibly unique about the Paralympics, is the classification system and this idea that we can take all physical disabilities across an entire spectrum from those who are completely immobile in four limbs and across their torso to those who have minor cerebral palsy that merely affects their ankles or something to that effect. How do we take the gamut of physical disabilities and create a sense of fairness or, 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 or a you know, a, a clean or, or open field of competition. And the classification system is, is the way that we do that. It's constantly under scrutiny. It's constantly controversial. Inevitably, wherever you draw the line, there's going to be someone closer to the line than others. And that person's always going to come under some level of scrutiny. But what I do think about, what I what I think is really valuable in the Paralympic movement is that at, at some point or another, you just have to say, this is the best we can do, and I'm really, uh, I'm really thankful and grateful to have the opportunity to compete. And I'm going to make the most of this. Um, the line is, is somewhat negotiable, as you said. It it evolves, and it's kind of a, along the line this kind of dichotomy. And in, in a lot of different sports in the Paralympic movement, it's not exactly like there's mi- like billions of blind people. Like there there are a lot of blind people, but not all of them are involved in sport. And when I look at, you know, uh, growing up as an able bodied swimmer, there are, you know, thousands of kids at every weekend swim meet. There's just not that many blind people. Like the the biggest grouping of blind athletes I've seen at anything is in the tens, not the hundreds or the thousands. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're constantly in this battle of how do we create uh, subcategories that have enough athletes to be competitive? but is also fair. And there are instances in sport where to get enough athletes in the category, you have to broaden the aperture of who's included in that category. And as you broaden that aperture, that range of capability also broadens. So you have someone who's kind of at the top of that category, maybe the least disabled, and then you have someone at the bottom of that category. And there is an inherent physical advantage baked into the subcategory. Yes, And that, that creates... You know, sub narratives of fairness, but I think at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that it is not entirely possible to achieve full, equal physical, uh, you know, uh, fairness. I guess you just have to kind of constantly be in that space of are we are we at an optimum space between competitiveness and fairness? Does that make sense?
0: It absolutely makes sense. In fact, when I was watching um, the most recent Paralympics. Um, I was watching. Um, I follow Sophia Herzog mm-hmm. on on social media, and I was watching uh, Sophia. You know, who is a little person in her mm-hmm. um, in her heat. You know, and everybody was of of average height. And I don't remember if Sophia um, swam at like a personal best in her heat, but I was thinking, you know, Sophia. I don't know how many little people swim and would swim in her. You know particular event but i was really proud of sophia i know she was out there giving giving it her all yeah i was i was cheering her
1: on she's she's one of my heroes yeah i think that's great it's one of the prouder moment or prouder aspects that i have over the paralympics is that i think everyone you know, just kind of buys off on this is the best we've got and i'm going to go out there and give it my all and let the chips fall where they may i think you know personally as an athlete i think these the the sub-narratives of fairness, the kind of saying, well, you know, that athlete only won because they're less disabled than me. I think that undercuts the value of the movement. It undercuts the core values of competition, friendship, camaraderie. You know, we're all just out there trying to give it our all. We're all competing Mm -hmm. under the same roof. You know, just go out there and give it your all and and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, And that's kind of the way that I've approached it. A lot of my teammates have approached it. And I think the Paralympic movement has, has succeeded because most athletes are willing to go out there and, and do exactly that, but I do think the the Paralympic movement is to an extent immature. Paralympics have not been around nearly as long as the Olympic movement, if, especially if you consider the ancient Olympics. Paralympics has only been really around since the end of World War II, in some way, shape, or form, and in its mod- modern form since you know the the nineties essentially. So we're still figuring it out um, globally. You know, in the United States, we're pretty lucky that we have a lot of organizations and resources that can uh, make it a little bit easier for disabled athletes to get into sport. But that's not the case worldwide. And there's a lot of athletes with disabilities out there who don't have, they don't have the ability to get a bike or to to get yeah. the equipment that they might need to get into sport. So I think one of the, the things that the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee is, fa- is focused on is trying to get those resources accessible worldwide. And I think as you see that, you'll see more and more athletes competing. And the more and more athletes you see compete, that competition starts to get better and better and better. You might see those lines start to move within that classification system to always optimize that competitiveness to fairness type of thing.
0: I hope so. I'm going to keep watching. I'm going to, we're going to like circle back in 10 years. And I was like, hey, Brad, remember when we were talking about
1: this?
0: (laughs) Look how it turned out, better than than we could have hoped. I I don't wanna neglect, Um, don't want people to think that, you know, swimming is the only thing that you do. I know you have transitioned, oh, it's like a transition because you're a triathlete, right? In the transition zone, sorry. (laughs) I was trying to be too clever. I ended up like an <laughs> idiot.
1: Um, no, I like it.
0: So <laughs> it's like uh, for your a career now as a as a triathlete. Like, um, do you find you're putting swimming more in the back burner? You're like, ah, I, I I got this. Got to just concentrate
1: on my running and, and cycling now. Or does
0: oh, does swimming not. still get the love?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think it's you know triathlon. I went from my longest race being four minutes and 30 seconds or so to uh, a race that is chronically over an hour. So it's all about endurance. And, you know, the thing that I need to do is not only get a jump in the water, but have a lot of gas coming out of the water onto the bike um, and then be able to finish strong on the run. So it's maybe less about being able to be super powerful and quick in a 50 meter or a 400 meter race, but rather how to keep. Really high, uh, a really high tempo, a really high uh, rate of speed in the water, but at a minimal amount of effort, much more like cycling. Much like I'm trying to just hit my threshold and be able to set up a really, really great bike, uh, with kind of coming out of the water, not feeling gassed. So the training's different, but it still requires a lot of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, most triathletes I know are like. I don't know. I don't know how they how they have time for anything but just basically perhaps sleeping and trying to jam as many calories in in their mouths as they as they can. So I'm kind of circling back to where we started the the conversation before we started taping because not only are you in heavy training involved on um, uh, an administrative or leadership level with the U.S. Um, OPC, um, but you're also pursuing a doctorate at Princeton. You're a new father. Um, mm-hmm. Am I leaving anything out? Is
1: there- uh, no I, that that <laughs> that wraps up the day really wake up uh, take care of the baby, try to get some training in I'll, I'll, that's, uh, that's the day to day pursuit for sure
0: yeah um and you said your your goal is to go back to the naval Academy as mm-hmm. a faculty member there yes in in what um in what capacity?
1: So I actually had the opportunity. I was on the faculty there for a period of two years or so teaching in the leadership and ethics department, but I was under a temporary program. And uh, it became apparent that for me to get a long-term sort of tenure track job, I'd need to get the PhD. So um, I I found that I loved being at the Naval Academy. I think the Naval Academy is a really special place that does really special things. Um, The brigade of midshipmen are a group of really exceptional individuals who are trying to do good things to, to, to take their talents and efforts towards something that, you know, mean something serving our country, making sure our country is safe. And um, I really found that job to be very rewarding. So I'm up here trying to get uh, my PhD. I've finished up my coursework. So I have three years now to put together a dissertation. And then hopefully, once I finish that up, I can apply for and, and get a job back in, in Annapolis, which is where I met my wife, um, who is my con- my training partner. And that's kind of going back to your previous question. I would never want to leave behind swimming. Swimming is our, our joy. I love riding the bike. I love running. I love working out. But swimming is just a place of joy. And my wife and I have been swimming together um, since we met. And, you know, three, four days a week, we get over to the local Y and, and then we swim together. And that's just really kind of a place of, of joy for us. So I, I look forward to getting to the pool next time.
0: Brad Snyder, thank you so very much for being a guest on The Bounds. And, and thank you for your service.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This has been a pleasurable conversation. I'll I'll take any excuse I can to talk about the uh, the excitement around Paralympic movement. And I, I hope that I can come back with you in, in maybe not 10 years. Maybe let's talk in three years and see how we've done in the Paralympic movement in the United States.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Bounce, sports talk with a spin. The Bounce is hosted and produced by me, Jill Yesko. The podcast is distributed by your public studios. New episodes of The Bounce will be released the third Thursday of the month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about The Bounce at wypr.org backslash studios.